We are continuing this morning with our study through Psalm 119. Uh, Today we're looking at the sixth stanza, which is verses 41 to 48. The context of uh, Psalm 119 is that the psalmist is writing and speaking uh, because he's living like an alien who is in an, an environment that is hostile to his faith. The psalm makes it very clear that he would regularly go to God for help. So he's regularly in prayer to the Lord because of what's taking place around him. But we also see that as he prays, virtually every prayer is connected with his need for the scriptures. He is regularly expressing his great dependence on the precepts of God. He regularly asks the Lord to teach him, to grant him greater understanding, He's regularly committing himself to keep God's commandments. So that's a significant theme that we're looking at. To this point, the psalmist has given us really a number of different emphases that are all connected with the scriptures. In the first stanza, he started off by making it clear that in order to have a blessed, in order to have a happy life, a person needed to order their life in accordance with God's law. In the second stanza, he deals with the issue of purity in a culture that emphasizes what is impure. And he says if we're going to keep our way pure, then we need to keep it in accordance with the word of God. In the third stanza, the psalmist deals with specifically how to live when you are a stranger, when you are an alien in the culture, and what do you do when civil magistrates are hostile to your faith and actively work against you, and his answer is to give the testimonies of God as the thing that gives him this real true delight. He uses the scriptures to give him counsel on what he needs to do. In the fourth stanza, he deals with the fact that sometimes he's greatly discouraged. Sometimes it feels like his soul is like glued to the dirt. The scriptures make it clear that there are times to lament before him. Sometimes we lament because of the evil we see in the culture around us. Sometimes we lament because of the evil we see inside of our own hearts. In those times, we come honestly before the Lord and trust him to revive our souls according to his word. In the fifth stanza, which is what we looked at last week, the psalmist was giving prayerful attention to his own spiritual growth. Every verse really is a prayer for God's help. He asked for the Lord to teach him the way of his statutes. He asked for the Lord to grant him understanding of what his law had to say. He asked the Lord really to recognize his weakness and actually make him walk in the commandments. And all the way through, the psalmist really is admitting the things that make spiritual growth hard, but he knows that the Lord will establish his word to his servant. Well, that brings us to the sixth stanza. In verses 41 to 48, The psalmist deals with a different area of concern now to believers. His concern is how to be a faithful witness, especially when the people around you are hostile to the message. So, read for you verses 41 to 48. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be ashamed. 
I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. I mentioned before that some have proposed that Daniel is a possible person to consider who may have written this psalm. Uh, the situation he was in as a Jewish exile in Babylon really fits with the things that are written about and addressed in this psalm. And in these verses in particular, we see a number of things that I think we can see that would fit quite well with the book of Daniel and things that, whether Daniel wrote it or not, it's definitely things that he applied and we can see in his life. Well, we can divide these eight verses, I think, into two sections. I based on the fact that the psalmist makes two specific requests of the Lord in these verses. They are in verse 41 and in verse 43. And then the verses that follow those two requests focus on the psalmist's response and his resolve in light of what he's trusting God to do. So for our first section, we'll be looking at verses 41 and 42. There the psalmist is asking for God's grace and salvation in his life. The second section will be verses 43 to 48. And in those verses, the psalmist is especially focused on being a faithful witness for the Lord, no matter what his circumstances may be. So our first main point this morning is this. To be a faithful witness for the Lord, one must first know God's grace that leads to salvation by faith. You must first know God's grace. This is the obvious place to start when we think about being a faithful witness of the Christian faith. Before a person can be a faithful witness for the Lord, they must have a relationship with the Lord. The psalmist already has that. He's not asking God to save him. Instead, he's acknowledging God's salvation and his continuing need of God's salvation. When we think of Daniel's situation here, I mean, it's clear from the very beginning of the book that Daniel was fully committed to the Lord. He was in a hostile environment from the start when he was in Babylon, but no matter what the situation was, Daniel was faithful to the Lord, and when the opportunity came, he gave testimony of his faith. So we see one example of him, of someone who knew the salvation of God. Well, verse 41 is the first request the psalmist makes of the Lord. He says this, May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So the psalmist begins with this request. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord. By the way, one thing that's kind of interesting about this, you know that uh, in your Bible, I'm sure shows this, that each of these stanzas are connected with a particular Hebrew letter, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This one is Vah, which is actually a letter that uh, in itself is like a conjunction. Uh, oftentimes it's just translated as and. And there aren't that many words in Hebrew, apparently, that start with that letter. So you're going to see all through this letter, you see ands and alsos and sos, all these conjunctions that he's using because each verse is going to start with that letter. And he was a little bit challenged in this verse to, to do that because there weren't a whole lot of Hebrew words to use. So anyway, may your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord. The word loving kindnesses here can be translated as mercies, or even you could even use the word grace. Uh, it's the Hebrew word hesed, which is often connected with the covenant blessings that God gives to his people. So from this verse, 
we can see our next point, which is it's a blessing from God when a person sees that because they are sinful, weak, and unworthy, that they are in dire need of the mercies of God. They're in dire need of the mercies of God. A request for God's loving kindness or for God's mercy or for God's grace is in itself a confession of need. I mean, to ask for God's mercy is to admit that, that you've sinned. I mean, it's that uh, you have not fully honored his holy law. And no matter who you are, we always fall short of what God requires of us. And so as Christians, the Lord really has given us a desire to want to honor him in our life. And that's a blessing that we have. There's a desire to honor him. But we also, he also convicts us when we sin, when we don't honor him. And that's a blessing too. And so instead of holding to a belief in like personal greatness, we are confessing that we're actually sinful, we're weak, we're unworthy. But our God is full of love and full of mercy and full of loving kindness and grace. And so it honors him when we come to him confessing our need, confessing our sin. Granting forgiveness for sin and strength and weakness honors God who loves to show mercy to those in need. Now this, of course, is really what we must do in becoming a Christian in the first place. I mean, we come to God knowing that he created us. We're accountable to him for how we live our life. We've all fallen short, as we've said, for what he requires of us, and we know that we all deserve his judgment. But God is that God of mercy and grace, and he sent his son into the world to accomplish salvation for sinners. And as the one who was fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ lived that perfectly righteous life. So when he died on the cross, he died as a perfect sacrifice. And by his death, he endured the judgment, the condemnation that every single person deserves. His resurrection affirmed that Christ perfectly accomplished salvation for all who would believe in him as Savior and Lord. So God truly is a God who delights in giving grace and showing mercy and is, uh, to those who are sinful, weak, and unworthy. It's interesting, by the way, that the psalmist is asking for loving kindnesses. The word is plural. Google doesn't think it's a real word, but it is. But it's because uh, it, 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 it's the idea that we need lots and lots and lots and lots of mercy. We need that, and God delights in giving lots and lots and lots of mercy. So he talks about mercies and loving kindnesses. And he's, he's sure this is a request that God's going to answer. First, he, uh, he's considered the, he, he is considering the receiving of God's loving kindness as equivalent to receiving his salvation. He puts the two together. And then second of all, the psalmist believes he will receive this gracious salvation because he knows it's promised in the word of God. He says, your salvation according to your word. In other words, as is promised in your word. A couple places he might go to for that. Abraham, we know, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, the fact that his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness means that he was saved. He received salvation by faith. Well, the psalmist would know that. He knows that that's a promise for us as well. And then you have all the sacrifices of the unblemished animals offered in the tabernacle and in the temple for sin, foreshadowing the sacrifice of the Messiah, 
that would graciously provide salvation for all who would believe. So he's trusting salvation according to the promises of God's word. He knows that God has promised salvation for unworthy sinners, and so he has received God's mercies and continues to trust God to give him all the loving kindnesses that he needs in his life. Well, verse 42 then gives the psalmist response for knowing that his prayer will be answered. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. So this tells us next that when one has received God's saving mercy, they have a message to share with others, even those who may mock their faith. The salvation spoken of in verse 41 is the gift of grace, the mercy of God for those who are sinful, weak, unworthy, like we said. But when we know this message ourselves, we know this salvation ourselves, then we have a message of hope for everyone, one that everyone needs to hear. We're all in need of a Savior. There's no exceptions to that. And in this verse, the psalmist is especially thinking about people who had brought a reproach against him for his faith. They didn't just merely disbelieve or disagree with him, but they proceeded to make fun and and mock what he believed. I mean, it's one thing to have a nice conversation with someone who's willing to talk about the issue of faith and, and so forth, but it's another thing to talk with someone who likes taking pot shots at what you believe. Uh, they may mock the fact that you believe in a triune God. They may mock the fact that you believe an ancient book like the Bible could actually be the infallible, authoritative word of God. They may mock the fact that you believe there's such a thing as eternal hell for those who reject Christ. It's definitely harder, I think, to share with one who is actively mocking your faith. But the confidence we have is that in Christ, we have an answer. They may not like the answer, but we have an answer for the one who reproaches us. Instead of feeling threatened or having doubts about our faith, we are confident because our confidence rests on the word of God. We trust in what his word says. It's really not hard to see Daniel praying something like this himself when he was forced to live as an exile in an idolatrous nation like Babylon. He was forced, for example, (coughs) to study Babylonian beliefs, uh, but his trust was always in the word of God, not in the Babylonian teachings. He always kept that straight, and there's all kinds of examples of that. We, too, are often exposed to many beliefs and ideas that are opposed to the Christian faith. It's sometimes a temptation to doubt the scriptures and maybe compromise and kind of go more with what the culture is emphasizing at the moment. But we truly know that the mercies of God, and that if we know we have been saved by his word, then we have a ready answer to those who reproach us. Well, now we focus to verses 43 to 48, the second half of this stanza. Let me read those verses for you again. He says, And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. These verses are also directly tied 
to a request the psalmist makes of the Lord. And then we see multiple resolves that the psalmist makes in confidence that God will answer that request. So our second main point is this. To be a faithful witness for the Lord, one sees the need to be consistent in their own walk with the Lord, their own walk with the Lord, and then trust him to give opportunities to speak. In verse 43, we see the psalmist's second request in this stanza. He says, and do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. The word and, as I mentioned before, is, is, is the letter that he's especially focusing on, but it also ties it to the specific, to the previous request he made in verses 41 and 42. He knows he has a message for others because he has experienced God's gracious salvation that's come to him by faith, but he's concerned that there are things that could take that message out of his mouth. Well, what kind of things could he have in mind? It could be a lack of assurance. I mean, if, if, if a person has a lack of assurance that they really are a Christian, then you aren't really going to be sure. I mean, you're going to be more hesitant to talk with someone about that faith because you're not totally sure that you're really in the faith yourself. So that could take the word of truth out of your mouth. It could be a concern that the psalmist had that maybe God would not deliver him from his enemies and he could lose his life and therefore lose his ministry. Well, there were obviously several times that Daniel's life was threatened where that could have happened, but of course God delivered him. It could be that kind of thing. But I think it's more this. I think the psalmist is more concerned here about the need of being consistent in living out his faith. One of the biggest things that keeps a person from sharing and keeps others from listening is a hypocritical faith. It's when we claim that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, but there's not a lot of evidence in our life to back up that claim. In fact, there could be things in our life that might make some wonder if our faith in the Lord made any difference at all in how we believed. So I think the psalmist's concern here is this. He feels the responsibility to live what we would call to be a true Christian in the way he lived. And since there was so much pressure to go the other way, he's concerned he might fall. He might be influenced by that peer pressure. In fact, the word utterly here, do not, utter, uh, do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, that really seems to suggest that the psalmist was under duress. And so he's asking the Lord for help. He is continuing to trust in God's ordinances, so he's trusting him to see him through. Well, after making this request of the Lord, the psalmist then makes several resolves that he's trusting the Lord to help him with. The first one is in verse 44 when he says, So, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. So from this resolve, we can make this application. By God's grace, resolve to glorify the Lord by continually keeping his law with a view toward eternal glory with a view toward eternal glory. The psalmist does not want to fall to the pressure that uh, is in the culture around him. He does not want to accept, accept the culture's belief system. Instead, he commits to keep the law of God continually. And he is intent on knowing God's law and being faithful to obey his law, really to obey every aspect of his law. 
And it's almost as just in this short verse that he kind of stumbles over himself a little bit, trying to make it clear how much he really does long to glorify God in this way. He says he's going to keep his law in his life. In fact, he's going to keep his law continually. In other words, there's never going to be a time in his life where he will cease to keep God's law. In fact, he's going to keep God's law forever and ever. So the desire of his heart to honor the Lord is very clear just in this short verse. And it's very interesting that he brings eternity into this resolve to glorify the Lord. The law of God is so precious to him that he cannot imagine ever having a time in his life or even in eternity where he would not keep and honor the law of his Savior. I mean, he loves and delights in the law of God because he loves and delights in his Savior. So what he's talking about here is heaven. In Revelation 21:27, the new Jerusalem is described like this. It's described as containing nothing defiled, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The psalmist is really anticipating how glorious that's going to be. He will be with his Savior. The law of God will be the rule of conduct for every single person who is in heaven, including himself. He's not looking for a break, to take a break from righteousness. He's instead anticipating the perfect righteousness that will take place, and that motivates him to glorify God in the present because of what he knows is going to happen in eternity. The second resolve is in verse 45. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. So this verse reveals a very important truth and exhortation. We see that by God's grace, recognize that keeping God's law is the recipe for living a life of true liberty. Liberty? I mean, in the preceding verse, the psalmist resolves to continually keep the law of God, not only in this life, but throughout eternity. And then here in verse 45, he says he describes himself as one who is regularly seeking after God's precepts. Is that what we think of when we think of liberty? I don't know if it is. Literally, by the way, the word liberty means Walk in a wide place. That's interesting here because with that idea in mind, we could say, well, in verse 42 and 43, he was talking about being in some tight, difficult, uncomfortable kind of situations where people were mocking him for his faith. He had concerns about his Christian testimony being rendered mute because of the way he lived. But now, as a result of his commitment to keep the law of God continually and to continue to seek his precepts, now he walks in a wide place. Now he's in liberty. Liberty is easily misunderstood. People often think of liberty as being free to do anything you want to do. That's not liberty, that's chaos. That's lawlessness. You don't want your neighbors feeling free to do anything they want to do, taking anything they want to take, acting any way they want to act. You don't want that, and they don't want that of you either. 
That's not liberty. Lawlessness is not liberty. Liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want. Liberty is the freedom to do what you should. Liberty is freedom to do the right thing. It's freedom to live a godly life. So liberty goes hand in hand with a commitment to keep God's law continually. Law and liberty fit together. Sin, on the other hand, is slavery. John 8, 34, Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Charles Bridges gave this visual. He said, every sin is like a new chain of bondage wrapped around us. (laughs) But, he says, on the other hand, every chain by which we bind ourselves to the Lord makes us more free. You're familiar with our Liberty Bell, which was rang in 1776 to celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence, a focus on liberty. It's called the Liberty Bell because Leviticus 25.10 is inscribed on the side of it. Here's what it says. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That's what's inscribed on the Liberty Bell, and that's why it's called the Liberty Bell. And it's interesting that this verse from Leviticus is the one that was used on the Liberty Bell. The book of Leviticus, I just finished a few weeks ago, finished reading Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is all about holiness to the Lord. And in the context of a book about holiness, we read this this proclamation of liberty. Holiness and liberty go together. The more holy a person is, the more truly free that person is. And for the psalmist, the precepts of God that would lead to holiness and liberty, they weren't forced on him. It says there in verse 45, he was actively seeking them so he could understand and better apply them in his life. So as Christians, we need to recognize that keeping God's law really is the recipe for living a life of true liberty, which is an important part of being a faithful witness for him. (coughs) The third resolve is found in verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. (coughs) So point C is this. By God's grace... Resolve that you will courageously testify of the Lord before civil authorities when the need arises. By the way, let me point out here that everything the psalmist has prayed and resolved to this point makes it possible to be successful in speaking of the Lord's testimonies before kings. First, remember, the psalmist speaks of the abundant mercies of God to him that resulted in a salvation he did not deserve. And because, of, and, and, and because of that, he had a testimony of God's grace that all needed to hear, even those who were adamantly opposed to it. And then secondly, the psalmist expresses concern that the witness of his life might negate the witness of his words. So he was committed to living a life worthy of his calling. He was committed to keeping the law of God continually. 
And because of that, he was enabled to walk in liberty, no matter what his outward circumstances were. And it's because of all those things, and all those things prepared him to be able to speak of the things of God before kings and not be ashamed. It all ties together. Proverbs 29.25 tells us that the fear of man brings a sneer. And my guess is probably every one of us in here have, have experienced that. That the fear of man can like trap you. It can be a snare. Well, the psalmist addressed that issue by growing strong in the fear of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon made this observation. It's on your outline. He said, when God gives grace, cowardice soon vanishes. When God gives grace, cowardice soon vanishes. In the scriptures, we see multiple times when God gave this grace and believers spoke confidently in a public situation. For example, multiple times in the New Testament, Peter and the other apostles speaking boldly the word of God in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, less than two months after Jesus Christ had been condemned and crucified in the same city, and they were running away and hiding. But now they're speaking boldly about Christ. Stephen stood boldly before the Sanhedrin and proclaimed the word of God, after which they stoned him to death. Later in the book of Acts, we see Paul speaking to a number of civil magistrates. He spoke to Felix. He spoke to Festus. He spoke to Herod Agrippa about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, of course, we see that Daniel did that several times himself. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Daniel 1, we see that God gave, uh, that God gave Daniel the strength to refuse the king's choice food, which was probably associated with the Babylonian gods in some way. And as he spoke, as Daniel spoke, we read this. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. So he was speaking confidently before an authority, and God honored that. Another example, there's several we could go from. Let me just give you one more. Another example is in Daniel chapter 4. That's where he interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and that dream was actually a rebuke from God for King Nebuchadnezzar's sin and his arrogance required true boldness to tell the most powerful king in the world at that time, here's what God says about you, and here's what's going to happen to you if you continue to be arrogant like you are. He was able to do that because he was honoring the Lord by keeping his law continually. Therefore, he was walking at liberty, not in the fear of man, in the fear of God. He was walking at liberty. He was walking in a wide place. The time may come where we may have to testify before civil authorities about the Lord in some sense. When that happens, we can be sure that he's going to give us the grace so that our fear will begin to fade in the background. I'm not sure if it will totally vanish, but in the background so that we can actually say whatever we might need to say. The last resolve speaks of the psalmist's ongoing fellowship with the Lord. <clears throat> this is verses 47 and 48. He says, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. 
and I will meditate on your statutes. These are challenging, really encouraging verses, and they give us his final point. By God's grace, resolve to continue to emphasize fellowship with the Lord as you love and delight in his commandments. So we move from liberty to courage to love and delight. The psalmist's delight in God's commandments has shown up several times already. Back in verse 16, he spoke of delighting in God's statutes. Back in verse 24, he said the testimonies of God were his delight. Back in verse 35, he spoke of delighting in the path of God's commandments. He did not consider it drudgery to spend time in the word. He did not consider it a downer to have to think a lot about the laws and commands of God. To the contrary, he was committed to living a holy life. God had clearly placed this love and delight in his heart, and it was an outgrowth of knowing the mercies of the Lord were continually being poured out on him. Verse 47 and 48 really are the first time that the word love shows up in Psalm 119. It's going to show up another nine or ten times before, the, before this chapter is over. But love and being committed to keeping God's law are connected. Love and law are connected. Paul said it this way. This is Romans 13, 10. Paul said, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It's the law of God that tells us how we should love God. It's the law of God that tells us how we should love our neighbor. Love and law go hand in hand. In verse 48, the psalmist even speaks of lifting up his hands to the commands of God as an illustration of his love and delight. And this seems to be given as an example of almost like a, kind of an example of reaching out to try to get as much of the law as he can. Um, that seems to be maybe what he's, the, the, the vision, the, the visual he's trying to give us there. We should also keep in mind here that the psalmist has spoken of being reproached, mocked for his faith. He has spoken of being compelled to have to speak before kings of the testimonies of God. He had some definite challenges in his life, but he continued to pursue love and delight in the Lord and in his word, regardless of his circumstances. This really reminds me of what the prophet Habakkuk said in the final verses of his book. The Lord had revealed to Habakkuk that he was going to send the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to actually punish the people of Judah, attack them and destroy them because of their sin and rebellion against God. Habakkuk really struggled with this revelation from God. And that's really what much of the book is about, is him struggling with this and going back and forth about what God has, has revealed to him. But he ends up recognizing and admitting that God's ways are best. And here is how he ends his book. This is uh, Habakkuk three sixteen to 19. He says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. In other words, his prophecy just struck him deeply. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, 
for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. So you can just see in those short verses how deeply the prophet struggled with what he knew the Lord was going to do. But you can also see him in the same in the, in, in the same words. He just kind of flows right into it. In that very context, he speaks of his own love and delight in the testimony of the Lord. He vividly illustrates the truth here that we draw our joy from the Lord and his salvation, not from our circumstances. That is so hard to keep that straight. We draw our joy from the Lord, not from our circumstances. The psalmist did the same thing that Habakkuk did. One more thing I want us to take note of before we close. At the end of verse 48, the psalmist speaks again, and he said this multiple times too, of his intention to meditate on the statutes of the Lord. He knows that this is something he must continue to do as God's servant. Charles Bridges makes this comment about the benefit of meditating on the scripture. He said this, It is in holy meditation on the word of God that all all the graces of the Spirit are manifested. To meditate is to think carefully, deeply, prayerfully. It's to study and to think uh, uh, carefully on the Scriptures. And when we do that, Charles Bridges says, the Lord brings the graces of the Spirit to bear into our life. For example, as we meditate on the Scripture, the Lord causes us to grow in our faith, enabling us to, to rely on more on the promises of God. As we meditate on the Scripture, He can cause us to grow in the fear of the Lord, especially when we're focusing on the warnings that God gives, because that's part of His testimonies. As we meditate on the Scripture, He can cause us to grow in hope as we think more fully about what the glory of God really involves and how we'll be participating in that in eternity. It can cause us to grow in our love for the Lord and Savior, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us. So as we meditate, there are all kinds of graces of the Spirit that are manifested in our life to enable us to press on, to enable us to persevere. So it's by the loving kindnesses of our Lord and salvation that we are enabled to be his faithful witnesses in life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example we have of the psalmist who had challenges, but also he was committed to being a faithful witness no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how the culture might be pressing him to not do that. Lord, help us. This is a, an area where I know that I, there's so many weaknesses in my life. I'm, a, I'm ashamed to think of all the different times that the fear of man gets in the way, in my way. 
So, Lord, I ask that you would help us to grow in our understanding and our appreciation of the loving kindnesses, the mercies that you give us in such abundance. Thank you that you're always there and you're constantly blessing us with your mercies. And, Lord, we thank you that because of that, we, we do have a message. We, we have a message of what it is to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, how a sinner can come to faith in Christ and be in right relationship with, with the Lord. Lord, help us to continue to grow in our faith. Help us to delight in your word. Help us to be people who are firm and strong in liberty. Lord, we just thank you again for the way you constantly work in us and how you use the scriptures themselves to encourage us and to help us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. That's really what the idea of kind of uh, acknowledging the, the mercies, the loving kindnesses, the grace of God is all about, is recognizing that's what we need because none of us have measured up to what we should be. A prayer like this will be a way to begin that. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I know there's all kinds of things that are in my life that are not what they should be. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life, to walk in his ways. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or uh, those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.